It is Chris Aiken Presents, and I, of course, am Chris Aiken, and I am honored to be speaking with this man once again, uh, one of my favorite bands of all time. Uh, so many great albums, whether you like the shock and awe records or the political records or music with a message, you pick it. This guy has done it. Uh, he is going back on tour here in the United States for the first time in a very long time, starting October the 28th in Las Vegas, and here to talk all about this tour and what's going on in the world of Wasp, the one, the only, Mr. Blackie Lawless. Blackie, how are you, man? I'm good, Chris. Thanks for having me. Sure. Well, Blackie, like I told you before we got started, it is definitely an honor to have you, and most importantly, it is an honor to have you back on the stages of the States, man, as a fan I, I saw the European tours that would get announced and played, and I kept scratching my head going, what did we do to to, to not get these tours anymore, man? We've missed you. Well, it's not the fans, and it never is, because any band that is offered to do you know, gigs or tours, things like that, if they're given the right offers, they're going to go. Right. So it was a question of really promoters believing. And more than anything... About two years ago, the fans got together in the United States, and they started doing a petition, and they were petitioning promoters around the country. And honestly, I've never seen anything like this. And they really, really started pressuring the promoters in the United States. And it woke the promoters up to the idea that the fan base is indeed here in America. So for all the fans out there, I want to say thank you. Sure. Def. Now, what do you think it was that the promoters weren't seeing? I mean, I've seen Wasp going all the way back to the early, early days with, like, the, the Tony Martin Black Sabbath. So that's, what, 84, 85? You know. Well, it's always, with you know, with promoters, it's always business. You know, it's like, you know, how many tickets can you sell? How much money can, can they make? And I don't really understand. I mean, for the longest time... You know, we were asking the question ourselves. And when this tour was booked, there was a lot of people that still were skeptics. And quite honestly, and again, this this is for the, the fan base and, you know, a tip of the cap to them. We believe, I mean, right now we have about uh, 25% of the shows are sold out. By the time we start at the end of this month, half the shows are going to be sold out before we even start. So and right now we're sitting at about ninety percent of tickets sold already. So across the board we're pretty close. Excellent. And again, this is uh, you know all about the fan base. Certainly, man. Well, well, Blackie, for for the fans that are coming out, myself included, here in Cleveland, uh, can't wait to see it. I'm curious what I'm going to be seeing though. You know, obviously. You have a very deep history, lots and lots of stuff to choose from, and lots of different maybe message or stylistic things to choose from as well. Your career has definitely kind of taken some twists and turns. So what can we as fans expect from this from this touring that's coming up? A little bit of everything, or are you focusing more into the, the sociopolitical stuff or the shock and awe stuff or what? We're going to put together a retrospective of the entire four decades of this band. Um, you know, it's a lot of ground to cover, and quite honestly, there are entire chunks we will not be able to touch at all okay. because there's just not enough time. I mean, this show's almost two hours, and but I'll just give you a, a brief synopsis of it. 
you know, we advertise it as going back to the beginning, and we are indeed doing just that. And one of the things that we're exploring is the stage set that's, I mean, I'm literally looking outside at it right now as we speak, and it's huge. It is a combination. It looks like an old 1930s carnival okay. with all the circus banners and things like that. But also, this band was heavily influenced uh, when we first started by the movie Road Warrior. Right. So this thing is a combination 1930s carnival slash Road Warrior slash some sort of voodoo ceremony. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it's uh, it's spooky when you look at it, and it's designed to be such. And this is, like I said, this is a, a theme I've been playing around with for quite some time. In in the mid-'80s, when we did Inside the Electric Circus, uh, this was an idea that I had, and because we were moving into arenas, people said that it needs to be bigger, it needs to be flashier, and it ended up being kind of a of a Las Vegas version of a of what I thought, you know, was my original idea. And I was never really happy with it. I mean, it looked fine when it was done and it played well in big rooms. But uh, this idea, like I said, this stage set is huge. It's the biggest show we've done in probably over 30 years. And it's big and it's flashy and it's, it's expensive. And I guarantee you people are going to be wild by it when they see it. Excellent. Now, for you personally, Blackie, is that... Does that do enough to keep you interested? And I, maybe interested isn't the right word, but keep you enthused night in and night out to do it? That's an interesting question because, you know, you find over a period of time you get a little desensitized to stuff. And I'm having an absolute ball right okay. now. We're, the, the crew is over here, and we're putting this, this thing together. And like I said, it's a monstrosity. And it's like a giant erector set. And when I say giant, I mean this thing is 16 feet high and it's 35 feet across. Wow. And when you see it, what we're trying to do is get people, when they walk into this room, to think they've walked into a midway of a carnival. Excellent. And it's going to look very, very close to that. And when I say close, I mean real close. Sure. So I'm having a ball with us right now and you know being able to examine some of the ideas that we haven't done and and songs we haven't played for a long long time um this is uh, i can't remember having honestly this kind of joy of being in the environment with the guys and and just you know everything we're doing you know it's it's been fantastic sure now now blackie you, you know there's obviously songs that you have to play you know, there's the, you know, L.O.V. Love Machine and stuff like that. And and then there's, I'm sure, more than a few songs that you always thought should have done better than, than maybe they did. Is this the kind of tour where you can incorporate even one of those songs that you think should have had much more success but did not, for whatever reason, didn't get the push it should have? There's a couple of them. We're, we're actually we're in rehearsals right now as we speak. And there's a few of them that we're playing with. The problem is, again, it goes back to the idea of time. Right. Because when we put, I mean, there's certain things we're going to have to play. And if we don't, there'll be a riot. And that's understandable. You know, so those are the staples you have to play. But artists sometimes become self-indulgent. I'm trying not to do that. 
you know, but there are things that I would want to try. And if, if we don't do it now, we, I may never get a chance to do it, you know, so there are a few of those that uh, we're playing with right now. And I want to say which ones they are because we haven't finalized the set list, but also something else that we're doing on this tour is the set is not going to be the same every night. Okay. You know, we're going to vary, we're going to vary some songs up from night to night because when we discovered that there's going to be people coming to multiple shows, we said, all right, let's give them something a little bit different each night. Plus, it also gives us the chance to expand on some of those ideas you were just talking about because there's just not enough time to play everything in the show. Right, definitely. Now, I'll ask the stereotypical question, and I'm sure you have a stock answer for it, but I'll ask it anyway. A lot was made when you said you weren't going to do Fuck Like a Beast anymore. A lot of fan pushback. A, do you think the fans were justified to be upset about that? And B, where do you stand with it today? Because I thought I read somewhere that you said you might pull it out now. I don't want to go into detail about it right now. Okay. Yeah, I'll just say it's being discussed. Um, but if we did it, mm-hmm. it's going to be different than people might expect. And what I'm talking about is from a visual perspective. Because, and this idea has only just surfaced in the last couple of weeks. Okay. And again, I won't go into what it is, but uh, it brought up a very interesting idea of if it was played, how it could be approached. So I'll just leave it at that for now. Okay, very good. Well, Blackie, um, you know as well as I do, the world today more broken than it's ever been. You know, it's just a mess. And... Your career, especially post, I'll say post El Dorado, I guess, was, has been filled with records that really took hard looks at the world. I would think now more than ever is a time that is almost perfect for new Wasp material based on the kind of world chaos we've sat through the last eight, ten years have you thought about doing any music? Do you have anything that you've even been working on or where? And, and if you have, is it, is it based kind of like Dying for the World or Unholy Terror, you know, those types of records in more sociopolitical avenues? Well, in my career, what I've tried to do, I mean, somebody, people have always said to me, you know, you know, what do you want written on your tombstone? You know, and I've always told people, you know, what I've what I've done in my career is designed to try to get people to think. Mm-hmm. You know, think for yourself. Don't listen to things you've been spoon-fed about. Do a little reading. Do your own research. And there you will find the truth no matter what it is. And so that's what I've tried to do with these records is to get people to think. But to be honest with you, because of the things that you just said about the state of the world... I think I've made those statements. Okay. And we are indeed working on a new record. And, you know, hopefully it's going to be out by May, June of next year. But the direction that I want to take it in is 180 degrees away from where you're, you're okay. or what you're speaking of right now. I want to do a record that is a feel good record, a rock and roll record that feels like what we did in the beginning. You know, I miss that. Like I said, I've made those statements over the years. I mean, the last record that we did, Golgotha, made some serious statements. Right. But I'm in where my my head is right now. That's just not 
what I want to do right this moment because with any artist, what you want to try to do if you have a real career, and I'm not talking about a band that's around, you know, four or five years, you know, I'm talking about a band that's been around 20, 30 years, something like that, or longer, you know, where you're going to take fans on a lifelong journey where the people look at a record that you might have made 10 years ago and say, oh, that's what he was thinking then, you know, and then a new record comes out and you go, oh, wow, look at what he's thinking now. You know, that's what I want to do. I want to continue to take people on that trip. And honestly, that's where my head is right now. You know, um, I just want to do something that feels good. Excellent. Can't wait for that, man. Well, Blackie, yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, it should be fun. Well, I do want to swing back to the tour, Blackie, and we are talking with Blackie Lawless of Wasp. Uh, tour starts October the 28th in Las Vegas. And uh, make sure you get out there if, before you get out there today, really, and get your tickets. Because if you don't, it sounds like you're not going to be able to get tickets. Now They are going quickly. That, and that's a great thing. I mean, that's, that's great because maybe it'll convince the promoters when the new record comes out that, yes, there is a lot of life left in Wasp. <laughs> Blackie, I, I wanted to talk to you specifically about these um, meet and greets that you're doing because they're different than everybody else's. You're not just doing the cattle call, come in, take your picture, shake the hand, and get the hell out of here thing. You're really doing an in-depth meet. When when you're saying meet and greet, you're literally meeting with people and talking to people and having conversation, not just, hey, how are you? Thanks for supporting me. So talk a little bit about this idea, man, because, and, and I'll just well, say Well, that this. was the thing mm-hmm. I was most excited about, because, you know, we've, we've been approached with this idea for years, mm-hmm. and it wasn't anything that I was particularly interested in doing, because I don't like the idea of, of that cattle call. Right. I mean, honestly, that, I, you know, I can't speak for anybody else that may do it, it's just not for me. Mm-hmm. I would want, one of the things I enjoy most is being able to pick people's brains. You know, I want to hear what they have to say, and I don't care what it is. Right. You know, I just want to have some dialogue with people because I want to hear what they're thinking. You know, what, this interview we're doing now is very conversational. You know, when I do interviews like this, I get as much out of it as the person that's doing the interview. Sure. Because it tells me, it, it gives me feedback. You know, and I, I'm not just, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. I'm right. listening, right. you know, while you're talking, and I'm getting an idea of where you're going with some of this stuff, you know, because the questions most journalists are going to ask is if they've done their homework, it's going to include people they've been talking to. Sure. You know, so they tell someone, yeah, I'm getting ready to interview this guy. And so the people they're talking to say, you know, well, you know what, ask him about this. Mm-hmm. You know, so when I hear that, I get a sampling 
of things. So, like I said, um, you know, I'm looking forward to this. And it's not going to be just two or three minutes. You know, I mean, we're trying to arrange it where we get at least a half an hour with the people. Yeah. You know, and, you know, I'm looking forward to hearing, you know, some of the things they got to say, because I've also found over the years that, you know, a lot of the questions that journalists will ask will be stock. Mm-hmm. The things that you get from the fans are the things that are always out of left field. And so it should be fun. Yeah, it, it should. The The interesting thing that, that I think with somebody like you is these things may go a very long time because. Well, you, that's the thing, you know, because I when I get into it, you know, I don't want to sit there with a stopwatch, you right. know, and have it go away. Because, like I said, when you get to, to hear what the fans have to say a lot of times, some of the most profound things that I remember in my career have to do with fans, things that they came up, they told me. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are the things that have stayed with me, and I'm, I'm hoping we're going to get some of that again. Sure. And, and I'm curious from you personally, do you have any examples or any music that you've ever created from a story somebody told you that was just a fan and not necessarily somebody directly involved in your life? Well, I wouldn't say probably in any one single song, but I remember after we did the first album, there was a girl and we had a song on the record called B.A.D., Mm-hmm. And this girl came up to me and she goes, I want to thank you for doing that song. And I said, well, what do you mean? And she goes, well, I was heavily hooked on heroin. I was going to die. And I was listening to the lyrics of that song. And it made me understand that, uh, you know, I was going to die if I didn't clean myself up. Now, the the irony of the whole thing is that song had nothing to do with with heroin or you know rehab or any of that stuff it um but it was her interpretation of the lyrics and but my take from it was you know when i walked away i thought and and quite honestly i was running from what i called the r word responsibility you know i didn't want to think about that you know but you realize that when you start speaking to people via records you're touching a lot of people at one time. Mm-hmm. And so, like I said, I was, you know, I looked at that and I thought, well, if I could do that and I wasn't even trying, what could I do if I really tried? You know, so again, it's those things and those little contacts that you have. You know, I've had people come up to me over the years and, and tell me other stories about something that saved someone's life or their life. Or, you know, it, it's happened a number of times. And, uh, like I said, they're always profound, and you don't forget those. Sure. When when was the point, or what was the point, that you became a much more cautious lyric writer slash songwriter? Is it Headless Children, or? Yeah, it was Headless. It was, you know, I was, um, I was in the UK, and we had done just done Inside the Electric Circus, and the first single came out. And I was reading a review of it in one of the newspapers over there. And the the guy, it got to the end of it, and the guy was talking about, not social relevance, but, you know, what lyrics could and couldn't do. Mm-hmm. And he got to the end of it, and he says, Wasp are capable of so much more than this. And, you know, it's one thing when you read something that you don't really much think about. 
But it's another thing when you read something and you have been thinking about it and it really pushes a button in you because I had already started to lean in that direction. And so I remember I was doing an interview with the editor of Hit Parader here in America a few months after that, and I just let it all hang out. Right. You know, I, I wasn't, you know, guarding my words. I was just saying what I felt. And some of it had to do with politics. Some of it had to do with what was going on socially in the world. And like I said, I wasn't worried about, you know, the public persona anymore. I was just letting it fly. Right. And the, he sent me, uh, about six weeks later, he sent me a sampling of mail. that Because in those days, people still wrote letters. Right. And he sent me a box of them. And letter after letter after letter, <clears throat> it was saying the same thing. We knew you thought like this. What took you so long to finally start talking about it? And it had a profound effect on me. And I thought, you know what? From this day forward, this is what I do. Sure. I write who I am, or I write about who I am at this moment in my life. I'm not going to try to look five years down the road, or even worse, try to look five years behind me. Right. You know, I'm going to write for who I am at the moment. That being said, and I'm going to choose my words carefully here, but... Do you look at the pre-headless stuff with any sort of regret? Because it was just bombastic shock versus a lot of challenging intellectual music. You know, musicians look at music, and there's only two categories, good and bad. Okay. And, you know, it's either good music or it's bad music. You know, there's nothing in between. I see those those records that we did early on, there's some good songs there, mm -hmm. you know, so whether they've got some sort of a lyrical message behind them or not, it's two different things. You know, again, we were writing for who we were at the time, you know, but I would also say that we, from the time we did Headless Forward, we started to develop a bit of a second audience. Right. Because I used to say, you know, it was, the I want to be somebody love machine people versus the headless crimson idol people. Mm -hmm. And they were, they were a little bit two different audiences at the time, but what's happened over the years is that the people that are buying those records now are listening to them now uh, that are the new fan base. They weren't around when those records were being made. The only thing they know now is that it's all one complete piece of work. They don't see it as individual chapters in a book. They just see it as a book. Sure. So they don't. They weren't there to feel what those times felt like when they were being absolutely separated. You know, with big punctuation marks in time. Mm -hmm. You know, from record to record, they just again they just see it as one piece of work. So they don't. They don't have that differentiation that you're referring to now. And as a writer or an author that writes books. That's really what you want. You don't want it to be blurred by time. You want it to be seen as one continuous piece of work. Right, certainly. Now, now, Black, yeah, I'm going to tell you, I, I participated in a podcast, I don't know, six months ago, I guess it was. And it was, it was a, the, greatest, um, the greatest concept record of all time. And it was basically, I took the side of Crimson Idol, and the guy that I was doing it against took the Operation Mind Crime side, which is a, you know, a pretty standard debate, really. Mm -hmm. For you now, as, as you know, the creator of the Crimson Idol, do, 
where would you rate your own piece of work if you could kind of like step away from the closeness to the writing of it and just look at it? And not, and it doesn't have to be compared to Queen's right necessarily. It could be compared to Tommy or, you know, the various, the, the wall, whatever you want to compare it to. How do you feel about your piece of work? Do you think that it's stood not only the test of time, but will continue to stand any test of time with anything put up against it? When the record first came out, uh, I was over in the UK, mm-hmm. and we were doing um, we were doing the videos for the record. I'm talking about the idol now. Okay. Um, when it first came out, the record was voted one of the top 20 conceptual records of all time. Mm-hmm. I mean, the record resonated pretty quickly with with critics and the fans and. Um, uh, and when I looked at that list, I was stunned. I mean, Sergeant Pepper was number one. Uh, the Wall was number two, you know, so forth down the line. Uh, we were number 19. Queensryche was number 20. Okay. But to be in that top 20 list, period, was, uh, I'm sure, for them as well as, and I'm talking about Queensryche, I'm sure for them was a big honor. But I'll be very honest with you. For the longest time, I thought Operation Mindcrime was a better record. Okay. And the reason I say that is because looking at it song for song, there's some there's some serious material on mind crime. It's only been until recently that I think I've been able to see from a fan's perspective why they gravitated towards the Crimson Idol or the people that did. Crimson Idol is is a simple record in the sense that the story is simple. Mm-hmm. It's about a boy, you know, he grows up, you know, he's looking for love. And that's a universal theme. And although within the record, there's some serious concepts inside it, you know, the egg inside the egg inside the egg. Right. On the surface, it's, a, it's a basically a simple story. And again, that's what I think people gravitated towards. And so, after, and it only took about 30 years for me to come to this conclusion I can understand why people would debate it. Those two records, they're apples and oranges in a lot of ways. Sure. Um, but the simplicity of what the Crimson Idol is, like I said, is what resonates with people. And uh, I flip a coin. Okay. You know, it's, uh, I don't think I could choose. Sure. Okay, I'll, I'm going to put you on the spot again. Is it be- is are the neon gods as one collective unit better than Crimson Idol? It's a more in depth story, and because it's it's a much more complicated story, people got lost in it. And you know that was a mistake that I made that a lot of writers make that they'll write a story that resonates with people, and then they think, okay, if you like that, get a load of this, mm-hmm. you know, and make it much more complex, and, and it's harder to follow the story. And again, going back to the idol, even though there was complexities within the songs, it was easy to, or fairly easy to follow his life. You know, the, the neon god was a totally different animal. You know that it was far more complex. Sure. And I look at it now, and I and I should have simplified it more. But you know, you live and you learn. Sure. Well, I'll, I'll say this just as a fan: my two favorite wasp tunes are on the are on the neon gods. With Raging Storm and Last Redemption, I mean those songs. There's some good material on those records, and, and it's it's almost it's just a shame that 
I don't remember who put that out. Was it Sanctuary or CMC or one of them companies? They just didn't do enough to get the word out about them, in my opinion, because... Well, also, you know, you, you got to remember at the time they were done, they were in the 90s. You know, we were, or at the late 90s, we were coming out of a period, and I say we, I'm talking about our genre of music. We were coming out of a period that was going to basically be the litmus test of the bands that survived right. the 80s. And because the 90s was really, you know, I mean, it was that, that test that only the best were going to survive it. And when it, the dust settled and people were able to look at it again, the bad taste that the late 80s had left with people, you know, had started to go away. And, you know, they were starting to look at the best of the best. And that's what was surviving. So anything that got caught up in that, that hurricane was going to be hurt in the 90s, and we were certainly one of them. And it's it's only been, you know, since the new millennium started that, uh, you know, the best of the best, as I was saying before, has been able to resurface again, and people were able to judge it again without that stigma of time being wrapped around something. Right, definitely. Well, Blackie, obviously, man, 40 great years of, of rock and roll from, from Wasp and from you. Um, is there anything left? And, and and what I mean specifically is just for you, not necessarily as a musician or a rock star or any of that, but just for you personally, is there anything left that you feel like you haven't accomplished or you haven't gotten to the level that you still have time to go to? I've been incredibly blessed. Um... I mean, it's. I'll try to simplify the story, but okay. when you you get into anything that's any kind of business that's results oriented, which we certainly are, mm-hmm. you know, sports, movies, music, you know, it all falls in the same category. Um, anything that's results oriented, usually less than one percent will ever have any real success. Right, and to be part of something like that, I look at it as I'm humbled by it. You know, to think that, you know, why were, why was I singled out to be able to do this? Has there been a lot of hard work? Oh, you betcha. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, whatever gifts any of us are given, to be able to maximize those at a high level for a long time, that's that's really the test of time, you know, and in the sense of, Again, not could you do it for four or five years? Could you do it for 20 years? Could you do it for 30 years? That's where you separate, you know, from the haves and the have-nots. And to be in a, in a category like that is a great honor. So for me, I don't look at it whether there's anything left to do. It's just I'm putting one foot in front of the other. And, uh, you know, who am I today? That's really what it is. You know, because to try to to look back or to look forward in that sense, I don't think really does us a whole lot of good. And, I, and that could apply to everybody's life in general. Sure. You know, so it's like, you know, where are you today? And try to try to savor that moment. Right on. 
Well, people can definitely savor the moment by uh, spending an evening with you uh, coming up at the end of this month, starting October the 28th in Las Vegas. It is 40 years live world tour. It is Wasp. And uh, Blackie, where should we tell people to go to keep up with you and tour dates and all that stuff? Well, the simplest thing would be waspnation.com. Okay. You know, that's got all the relevant stuff and the most current stuff on it. So, uh, you know, if you're looking, you know, to, to get clued in, that's where to go. All right. Well, one more time. The tour starts on October the 28th in Las Vegas. It is Wasp. Special guest, the mighty Armored Saint. What a great night of heavy metal that is going to be. And Blackie, thanks so much for joining me here on Chris Aiken Presents. Thanks for having me, Chris. I sure appreciate it, bud. All right. All right. heavy metal banter about the more modern bands of today then you need to be checking out talk to me that's right you need to be doing it featuring the one the only well maybe not either of those two but uh one of the bassists of primer 55 mr joshua Toomey, as well as yours truly we dig deep into today's modern heavy metal world to bring you the best podcast in the goddamn game so you should be watching Get Talk To Me at YouTube.com NotFest or wherever you get your favorite audio podcasts. New episodes come out every Thursday in audio form and on Fridays on YouTube over there at NotFest. Make sure you are tuned in. Talk To Me on NotFest.com. Subscribe today.